You're listening to a podcast from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm Kim Curry, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Welcome to Here's the Issue, featuring highlights of our January 2023 issue of the Journal. Well, happy birthday to us. In January 2023, our journal enters its 35th year of publication. In celebration of this milestone, I'm going to do something different this month. First, a short history lesson about our journal. Then I'll briefly mention the feature articles in this month's issue. And finally, you'll hear an author interview about one of those features. Now, let's take a walk down memory lane. Our journal was founded in 1989, just four years after the then American Academy of Nurse Practitioners was founded. The goal was always to promote both the science of advanced practice nursing as well as encourage legislative advocacy. By doing so, nurse practitioners knew they could improve access to health care, the primary reason for the founding of the nurse practitioner role in the 1960s. Now think about that for a minute. We're here to improve access to health care. It's in the 1967 article by Loretta Ford, Henry Silver, and Susan Sturley. It's always been about access to health care. Remember to say that the next time you talk to a legislator. Now moving on, our journal started as a quarterly publication. Four years later in 1993, the volume of high-quality manuscripts had increased to the point that it became a bi-monthly journal. The following year, it became a monthly publication as it continues today. Did you know that if you go to our journal homepage at jaanp.aanp.org, You can view each and every issue of the journal, going all the way back to Volume 1, Issue 1, with the first editorial written by Drs. Jan Towers and Donna Nativio. Well, you can. Anyway, in 2013, the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners merged with the American College of Nurse Practitioners to form the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, the national membership organization that we all know today. The journal name was then changed to the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. In 2015, eight years ago now, JAANP became an online-only journal. Since the founding of that original American Academy, the number of licensed nurse practitioners has increased exponentially from about 23,000 in 1984, around the time of the organization's founding, to over 68,000 in 1999, and over 355,000 as of 2022. That is more than five decades of improving patient access to care and quality of care, with an estimated annual number of patient visits now currently exceeding 1 billion. I'd also like to point out that the nurse practitioner role has expanded internationally and is now embraced in many countries around the world, with many more planning to do so, again speaking to the success of the role. This journal has always been a society journal and a member benefit. All members of AANP are subscribers to JAANP by virtue of their membership. There are now over 120,000 members of AANP. We are proud to celebrate the enormous achievements of nurse practitioners and to bring our growing body of knowledge to light. Finally, remember that JAANP supports the AANP mission to empower all nurse practitioners to advance accessible, high-quality health care for all through practice, education, advocacy, research, and leadership. 
Our role in supporting that mission is to promote the development and dissemination of science related to the nurse practitioner role, thereby adding to the existing body of knowledge. The aim of the journal can be found on our home page. It is to be the leading research-based scientific journal providing new evidence-based information for all nurse practitioners and others with an interest in the nurse practitioner role. As we move ever forward, it will be critical to hold fast to this mission so that we can continue to encourage and promote credible, scientifically sound, evidence-based practice. My sincere thanks to those who have supported and continue to support us in this mission. Now, on to a few notes about this month's features. First, I'd like to mention a systematic review by Hunsu Kim and colleagues, Identifying Barriers and Facilitators for Nurse Practitioners' Opioid Management of Chronic Pain. In this review, the authors identified barriers, facilitators, and other factors affecting nurse practitioners' opioid management and concluded that nurse practitioners' management can best be improved by providing them with current guideline-based education, supplying NPs with systematic support, encouraging interprofessional collaboration, and solving prescriptive authority issues. Enhancing nurse practitioners' opioid prescription and chronic pain management knowledge would help to mitigate the opioid epidemic. Next, you'll see a quantitative research article by Susan Quelly and colleagues, Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Practices to Lower Type 2 Diabetes Risks in Women with a History of Gestational Diabetes Mellitus. The researchers surveyed practicing nurse practitioners about gestational diabetes mellitus care and guidelines, as well as recommended practices. Findings indicated inconsistent care practices and suggest that additional education about care of women with a history of gestational diabetes mellitus may reduce type 2 diabetes risks and prevent health problems for women and future offspring. Then we have Janet Gehring and Rebecca Robert. They also contributed a quantitative research study, Predictors of Missed School Days and Military-Connected Families, a feasibility study. The authors used a secondary data analysis design and logistic regression to analyze a subsample of military-connected families from the National Survey of Military Children with Special Health Needs. The models identified important predictors of missed school days among military children that may inform assessments, interventions, and referrals by the nurse practitioners caring for them. This issue also includes a qualitative research study by Cindy Broholm and colleagues about preferences of LGBTQ patients in their healthcare providers. You'll hear an interview with Dr. Broholm about that study shortly. In January, we've also included two education features. The first is by Misty Ellis and colleagues. It's called Using Unfolding Case Scenarios to Promote Clinical Reasoning for Nurse Practitioner Students. The authors describe an educational innovation in which they design an unfolding or evolving case to provide sequential information about a patient's illness trajectory as the patient experiences the illness and related symptomatology over time. They found that implementing unfolding case studies in nurse practitioner student curricula promotes critical thinking, clinical reasoning, and allows opportunities to engage in interprofessional collaboration. Our other education feature is by Julianne Doucette and colleagues. It's called Addressing Health Equity Through a Telehealth Maternal Newborn Home Visit. This group of faculty describes the implementation and evaluation of a telehealth maternal newborn home visit clinical experience for pediatric nurse practitioner students at an urban private research university in the Midwest. During the pandemic, the faculty used the Family Connects evidence-based universal support program for families with newborns to evaluate each family's unique risks and to align their needs with available community resources 
and this happened in an ethnically diverse low-income community. Students were prepared for the clinical experience through didactic modules and simulation, and then they participated in family visits via telehealth. The experience prepared the students to meet the needs of a diverse patient population during the early postpartum and newborn period, while considering community resource referrals to reduce disparities and improve health equity. This experience addresses the American Association of Colleges of Nursing Essentials for advanced level nursing students and provides recommendations for incorporating and evaluating telehealth clinical experiences in pediatric advanced practice education. Our guest today is Dr. Cindy Broholm. Cindy is a family nurse practitioner who teaches at Long Island University in Brooklyn, New York. She also has a clinical practice in a healthcare facility that focuses on the LGBTQ population. She and her colleagues completed a study that's featured in this issue titled, Ditch the White Coats, What LGBTQ Plus Patients Prefer in Their Primary Care Provider. In their article, the authors point out that health disparities in LGBTQ plus individuals are well-documented, and there is a dearth of primary care providers with the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to sensitively care for this population. They conducted a qualitative study that involved a total of 28 patients to ask LGBTQ plus patients what qualities they prefer in their PCP. A thematic analysis of the data elicited codes, categories, and themes. The four themes identified by the authors were ditch the white coats, meet me where I am, the relationship is key, and be knowledgeable and comfortable with LGBTQ plus people and their healthcare needs. They were able to elucidate important information on caring for the LGBTQ plus communities and insights into what nurse practitioners must do to provide patient-centered care to this diverse population. The author's findings can improve practice through a better understanding of LGBTQ plus patients' perspectives. This study also demonstrated the feasibility of directly asking our patients what they want in their healthcare provider. Well, Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Now, tell us about your inspiration for conducting this study. I know there were a number of you involved in the study, and so did this spring from your own clinical practice or one of your co-authors? What was your reason? So the inspiration for the study was twofold. The first was as an educator wanting to explore what I need to do as an educator to teach nurse practitioner students how to care for the LGBTQ plus population. Mm -hmm. And also, I had the honor of working with the health center where I work on the development of the first postgraduate nurse practitioner fellowship in LGBTQ plus health. And so we were really looking at what do we need to include in the curriculum? What are the aspects and elements that need to be a part of a year-long training program for nurse practitioners to care for this diverse population? And so we decided to go ahead and do a study. And as I was initially exploring the literature on um, LGBTQ plus health, patient experience, what I found was that there was very little in the literature that specifically asks patients what they prefer. What are they looking for in their primary care provider? And I also, in my conversations with people, you know, was certainly thinking about, we'll ask the experts in the health center what needs to be included. We'll talk to, you know, we'll look at the literature. What are the topics that needed to be included? And a fellow nurse who's a nurse educator um, in a hospital in the my local area said, well, why don't you ask your patients? 
And again, it was sort of, I initially didn't think to ask my patients. I was going to go to the experts. And it was sort of through looking at both the article that I had come across by Alpert et al. It was published in 2017. And my conversation with this nurse really sort of changed my perspective that we really needed to talk to our patients. They are our experts. And they need to be the ones to tell us what it is they need in their care. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I, I like what you were going with there in terms of developing this curriculum and deciding what to put in the curriculum. And you need some baseline data on what patients are expecting, not just what the experts say. Right? Exactly, exactly. Well, now let's talk about that interesting theme, ditch the white coats more specifically. What did that mean to the patients that you interviewed and kind of what are the take home messages for nurse practitioners from that? So interestingly, the term white coats came up in two different focus groups. And you know, I don't think it necessarily means don't wear a white coat, although the health center that these patients were patients of is very informal and people don't wear white coats and you refer to your provider by the first name. So I think that sort of context was something that was appealing to patients. But when, when the patients in the um, focus groups talked about white coats, they were talking about somebody who was separate, somebody who stood over there. I mean, a, a number of patients described, you know, that person in the white coat over there, come take your white coat off and come and talk to me, listen to me, um, hear what I have to say. And so the white coat really symbolizes a power and what these patients were saying is share power with me. Mm -hmm. um, don't separate yourself from me, but be a part of, you know, a conversation with me so that I can participate in my care. Yeah, that white coat as a separator. Uh, yes, as a separator, as a power imbalance, an expert that doesn't hear what other people have to say. Yes. So I, I think you're summarizing it well as a separator. Well, I also want to thank you for including your discussion guide. And those are the guided questions that you use to engage with patients. I think that's going to be very valuable for others who may want to replicate or expand the study in other locations. And from the guide, can you give us a few examples of positive and negative experiences that patients did have with their primary care providers? Yeah. Um, most of the negative experiences that people shared were outside of the health center, and they were with providers that um, did not understand working with LGBTQ plus people that had biases. Um, people talked about it didn't, you know, not occurring to the provider they were seeing that they wouldn't be pregnant even if they were sexually active because they were sexually active with a woman and not being able to feeling comfortable saying that to that person because they felt that they might then by divulging that they were a lesbian that they might then not receive good care. Another person described a situation in which they shared with a radiologist that they were on PrEP um, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV and the attitude of the provider completely changed once the provider learned that they were taking PrEP. Other examples, I mean, things that people talked about in terms of stuff that they liked and that was really positive was the provider that remembered that little thing about them and that the next time they would go in would say, how are you doing? How are your kids? Um, one of the patients was homeless for a period of time. So the provider would always check in, are you housed now? Do you have enough to eat? That people felt like that relationship 
was individual to them, that they weren't just any other patients coming in to receive care, that they were an individual and that that provider saw them and recognized them as an individual. Mm -hmm. Those are great examples. And that that brings to mind another thing I was going to ask you about. Um, you mentioned in the conclusion also things kind of like this in terms of uh, we need to cultivate a relationship with our patient. We need to know them as an individual. In the conclusion, you mentioned that the study findings affirm the importance and feasibility of asking our patients what they want in their healthcare. And that strikes me as just a very universal thing. It's important, it's overlooked, but it, it really is universal. So it's not limited to the LGBTQ plus population. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I actually think that's true, um, that it is universal, that we need to be asking our patients of whatever background, what it is that they need and they want in their care. I think the things that are particular to LGBTQ plus population is that many come in with having experienced trauma, um, having experienced bias and discrimination, and that this is the context in which people are seeking care. It may be that they are um, afraid of divulging who they are or that they um, have experienced bias in the past. I mean, it, you know, it may be that None of that is the case, but I think that we need to sort of appreciate that for LGBTQ plus patients, they may have been rejected by providers in the past, their family. And so I think it's within that context that we need to understand that patients are coming in with the burdens of bias and therefore um, need to be open to understanding that and to providing a safe environment for people to be really who they are. So I think it's not the providing patient-centered care that's individual to LGBTQ patients. That, that's something that everybody needs. But I think it's sort of an appreciation of the backdrop of what many LGBTQ plus people experience in our society. Walking into the clinic, having already experienced things that other people might not have, and therefore that is an even more important boundary to cross in making sure that you're connecting with that patient and showing that you appreciate them for who they are. Yes, exactly. Great information. I'm really glad your team did the study. Are there any other comments you'd like to make about your study? I think what was so impressive to us and moving to those of us that um, were leading the focus groups was how generous patients were with us in terms of their willingness and desire to both share their experience and also support people to become better, better healthcare providers to this population. And I think in this day of wokeness and concern about saying the right thing, that people could get really anxious and hung up about, I don't feel comfortable caring for this population because I don't really know and I might say the wrong thing and somebody might get mad at me. And, and I think, you know, learning and awareness and you know, seeking out knowledge is really, really important. Language is important. Um, how we use language is important, but I think attitude is more important. And one of the patients at one point, and this is a quote that I, I carry around with me and share, my, share with my students, and it's if nurses just remember to be heart forward as much as possible, I think everything else will fall into place and mistakes or missteps are forgiven if it's done heart forward. And I think that's an important point for us to, to carry. It's like, we can do this. We may not do everything perfectly. And if we make a mistake, we can apologize. And that's okay. But that we need to sort of do it with open hearts and a willingness to learn. 
and yes, it's work. We need to understand things. We need to read about specific information. We, you know, as nurse practitioners, we need to know how to provide care. That's our responsibility, but we don't have to be perfect, but we do have to be open to our patients and provide care with our heart forward. And that's why I think nurse practitioners can provide such wonderful care because we're nurses at heart and we know how to do that. Great point. Cindy, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thanks to all of our listeners and be sure and look for more podcasts from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners.